Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome, SOS listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's show, I have an awesome guest from Melbourne, Australia, Pete Williams. You know, Pete's an expert on entrepreneurship. Even at the age 21, he took a stadium that was being demolished in Melbourne and uh, repurposed the demolished carpet and sold it as a heirloom because people are kind of in the history of this uh, destroyed and updated and upgraded uh, stadium. So his whole story is amazing. He's now come out with a new book around the seven levers, and I don't want to take away from this show and, and Pete sharing it. But one of the things that Pete talks about on the show is that you know we need to know ourselves. We need to be clear about who we are as individuals and be passionate. And so my encouragement is is that you know CRG has the tools and resources to help you to go to the next level for self mastery, for self awareness. If it's leadership skills, if it's entrepreneurship and you want to take our entrepreneurial assessment. So enjoy today's show with Pete. I won't go into any more detail of it. He's fun. He's energized. He used to be er, high energy. He used to be a podcast host, and you'll very much enjoy Pete in his accent from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to SOS. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate it. You're having me here, and I'm I'm glad you didn't kind of get caught with the drop bears or the snakes and spiders and all the other fun sort of uh, stuff we have in our wonderful country well, while you were was, down here. I was looking for them just to add some entertainment, <laughs> so that my wife could be scared right out of her skin as part of that. So that's my third visit. And Pete, you're in Melbourne, are you not? I am. Yeah, absolutely. Down sort of the southern uh, eastern tip. And I love the city. It really has grown. It was 30 years since I've been there. Oh, wow. And boy, your city has grown up. And many people that are listening here wouldn't necessarily know that Melbourne sort of um, predicted to out-populate uh, Sydney or grow mm. larger than Sydney. Isn't that not correct? Yeah, it's it's flying. You know, it's it's one um, most livable city in the world. I I think something like you know five out of the last eight years or something. Real estate prices are ridiculous, but besides that, um, yeah, food, culture, sport. It's um, I almost I, I I feel it's like the Australian version of San Diego. Obviously on the other coast, but mm. it's kind of got a bit of a San Diego vibe to it, in my my opinion. And a real coffee haven too. I mean, Massive since coffee, I'm on yeah. the West Coast in Vancouver and just north of Seattle, the, oh, the yeah. home of Starbucks and in all the coffee shops. I mean, we can relate to you completely uh, yep. on part of that. So, Pete, very again, thanks very much for being here on the show. Now, just so that you get it correctly, please announce for the for the listeners the name of your new book. Yeah, sure. It's Cadence: A Tale of Fast Business Growth. Okay, so we're going to get to the details of your book and how people can get a hold of your book on the second half of the show. But let's get into the beginning. So uh, have you always been, or were you born in Australia, or were there other sort of locations in your life? Born and bred here in Melbourne. Uh, lived in Florida for a little bit uh, after high school. Um, sort of packed up the bags and kind of went jet-setting and, and moved to uh, Fort Lauderdale and was a 21-year-old with an Australian accent about half an hour from South Beach, so you can imagine how much fun I had there. Oh, you but, did, yeah. because, oh, here, here's the girls. We're, we're not going to go into those embarrassing stories. But yes, <laughs> they, uh, just having that great accent, all of a sudden that was a, a door opener for you. Yeah, well, the original plan was when I moved there, um, so we can come back, we'll jump, jump forward a little bit. I was working at Athlete's Foot, the shoe store chain um, in Australia during university, and I was able to talk my way into a bit of a reconnaissance mission, I guess you could call it. The plan was to, to go to America for sort of six to nine months and work at a range of different athletes' foot stores across the country to see what you guys do differently in the franchises mm. over there and bring some of that learnings back to Australia. So I was like, all right, beautiful. I'll go. I'll start on the, um, the East Coast down in Florida, work my way back to the West Coast in California and then fly home. But yeah, 21-year-old, I landed in South Beach and went, nah. I'm not leaving. <laughs> Had a great time. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, and beautiful weather, 
uh, as well, you know, similar to, well, it's actually more, uh, it's hotter actually in some ways than Melbourne is uh, during the winter for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So tell us about your family and growing up. What was sort of the background? Were your parents entrepreneurs or what was the situation there? Yeah, my parents were, but my grandparents were. So I think I might have skipped a generation. My mum was a math teacher, just a high school math teacher. Dad worked in logistics, so sort of you know looking after warehouses and trucking and logistics sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, my, both my grandparents had um, their own companies um, in the stonemasoning industry and, and and stuff like that back in sort of country Australia. So they were very much the the entrepreneurs in the family, but it must have skipped a generation. Um, yet it's always been a part of me. Your mum loves telling this story of when I was, I think it was three or four years old, I, I drew arrows all the way down the hallway with crayon. And mum being the, su- the support that she was before she told me off and before she made me clean it off the wall, she asked me apparently, I can't remember this of course, but apparently she asked me, um, why did you draw all these arrows? What was the reason? And my answer at the time was, so you can find my way to my office, mummy. This is three or four years old. I was always trying to build an office in the, in, in the playroom, so it's always been part of me. And you know, during high school, um, used to run basketball trading swap meets uh, at the local caravan park and sports clubs. Started a, a website development company. This is in the late 90s during high school, doing websites for the local sporting clubs and my primary school and my high school and uh, and stuff like that. So I've always had this sort of bend towards. Uh, being an entrepreneur and trying to create something, uh, you know, I can't sing, I can't dance. So this is sort of my art mm. expression is through business, I guess. So through business. Now, what did you take in university? Uh, commerce. So yeah, again, business. Like I actually originally um, applied to do sports management when I was in year ten, which is a freshman, I think it is. Um, I went and did some work experience at a uh, sports management agency. So this is just before or around the time Jeremy, I think it was just before Jerry Maguire came out actually. I did some work experience at a sports management firm and I, I wanted to be a sports agent. We grew up in a very big basketball family and, and, and very much entrenched in the basketball um, leagues and world here in Australia. So I was going to be an agent or wanted to be an agent. Didn't quite get the, the score to, um, to get in that class. It, it, with universities in Australia, um, there's basically like an entry limit, so you kind of do hmm. the equivalent of your SATs and you get your score, and that kind of allows to sort of see, well, you know, where you can actually qualify to get into certain courses in university. And I just missed the sports management course, so I went, all right, I'll go to that same university, I'll do a commerce degree, and I can transfer into that course um, afterwards. And I was thinking, I was expecting, you know, the commerce degree to sort of really teach me how to run a business, how to be a small business owner, how to do direct, direct response marketing. Uh, yet I kind of realised that. It was at the time a grooming ground for some of the big four accounting firms. So, you know, commerce degrees weren't trying to teach entrepreneurship; they were trying to teach, you know, employability in accounting, finance, economics to work with you know the big banks or the big four accounting firms. And that was really interesting. I kind of was a bit shocked by that, and still enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Still learned a lot. Uh, I now actually have come full circle. I'm now a professor of practice back at that same university really trying to instill entrepreneurism and a whole bunch of other sort of elements into that course to sort of give students some real world skill sets they can go out um, and take to sort of start their own business and things like that and not have to go and do a white collar job. Cool. Now, is it still part of the commerce degree or are you interjecting your entrepreneurial sort of professorship into the business department like uh, bachelor's of business or master's of business? Yeah, it's still across the whole sort of business and law school. So one of the really cool things we're doing is... um, a couple of years ago, the, the, the actual university started a law clinic. So students in their last year of their law degree can go off and spend a, a semester or a trimester working in the law clinic, actually dealing with real cases. And it's been a, a huge success. So the school wanted to start a business clinic. So what we're doing is we're basically creating this capstone unit that students can take and then go out and actually find a small business in group of four and put that small business through a health check to actually understand how your HR actually really applies in the real world, how marketing and accounting can fit together and basically look at real world businesses and and do a health check on them to sort of help the business grow and succeed and give them some business planning and some projections but also that a student who might be doing accounting major can still understand that well marketing and, and HR and management, they all kind of fit together to run a real world business and it's um so we're rolling that out at the moment so that's my big project which I'm uh, having a lot of fun with. Oh great well congratulations on uh, 
giving back in helping individuals, young entrepreneurs, because we know, you know, the world is shifting back into entrepreneurship as massive changes. Yeah, it's, yeah so. it's, it's no longer the dirty word that it was 15, 20 years ago. Oh, not at all. And Bloomberg said in North America, at least, I can't speak for Australia, 50% of all positions will be contract by 2020, which is just two years away. So yeah. even if I'm a, an individual listening to the show and I'm on my own, you are really a self-employed entrepreneur and you're Absolutely. deploying and you're operating and that's just the way it is. But let's skip back, Pete. You're in Florida. You finished university. You're now, <laughs> so now what happened? After you finished dating half of Florida, what did you do? Well, I fell in love, as the story goes, and my plan was to move to New York. The, the girl that I was dating at the time, um, she was from New York, and she moved back there, and my visa expired, and I had to ship back to Australia. And the plan was to go back and, and, and move to America, and the goal at the time, this is like 20 years ago, big, big asterisks, mm. was to go and work with Donald Trump. You know, He was the pinnacle entrepreneur at the time, and things right. had changed a lot, but that was sort of the goal 20 years ago, right. not so much anymore. And the plan was to go back to New, move to New York and try and talk my into a career there but had to get my visa and, and all that sort of stuff sorted so went back and worked at another athlete's foot store in Australia that had just opened up so a brand new store had opened up not too far from where I was living so I went and managed that store for you know a bit of time and it was a relatively new store in a relatively new shopping mall so it was pretty quiet there wasn't a lot of foot traffic coming through pardon the pardon, pun pardon the pun Exactly. <laughs> so I'd spent a lot of time sitting behind the counter reading and I was reading a whole bunch of business books and one of the books I was reading at the time was called The One Minute Millionaire by Mark Victor Hansen and Robert Allen. It's a fantastic book. It's sort of like two books in one. One's a, a, a fictional story and, and then it was sort of like interchange with a traditional non-fiction business book to kind of cement the lessons. So it was a very unique kind of book but in now, one chapter... Just, uh, not to interrupt you, Pete, but right. I'm in that book. Really? My name is listed in the back of the book. There was a group of us that promoted the book and spoke on behalf of Mark and Robert uh, way wow. back in the early 2000s. And so it's a teeny smile, a small world, right? And so I was I, there during the launching and meeting with and hanging out with both of them. Dude, I did not know that. Well, that book changed my life. Like literally, like, you know, you can say books, this definitely did. And mm. that is incredible, Matt. I did not know that. That is really, really cool. Well, you probably remember that, you know, in one chapter, in one page, in one little section, it just sort of offhandedly mentioned the story of Paul Hartunian, who in the, as you know, in the 1980s, uh, bought all the timber that was part of the Brooklyn Bridge walkway between Manhattan and Brooklyn. And made little certificates up with the history of the Brooklyn Bridge and an inch by inch square of that timber. And you know, word around the campfire was that he made like two million dollars selling these little certificates for twenty bucks. Um, I think it Johnny Carson. These little slivers, slivers of wood. Right. Yeah, incredible. And I was just, you know, twenty-one year old back from America with a, a massive credit card debt because, you know, cocktails are not cheap on South Beach. And I, I'm like, okay, this. How do I start making money? And I'm like, this is a great idea. How can I kind of replicate? that idea here in Australia and um, the Melbourne Cricket Ground is sort of, I guess you call it Australia's version of Yankee Stadium. It's a 100,000 seat stadium, uh, really, really famous. It's kind of like, you know, the home of Australian sport. Um, the Aussie Rules football grand final is there every year. Mm. Obviously, we play cricket there every year as well. And part of that grandstand had just been demolished. Um, they were renovating it. We had the the Commonwealth Games, which is sort of, you know, the Olympic Games just for the Commonwealth countries, Australia, England, Canada, and stuff like that. We had that here in Australia, and I think it was 2006. So they were doing the demolition in the early 2000s to renovate the grandstand. And I remembered going to, to Aussie Rules footy games with my dad and sitting on really uncomfortable wooden seats. So I started thinking, well, how can I replicate that? How can I take that idea that, you know, of the Paul Hartunian thing and do that here in Australia? So I made a few phone calls and tracked down the wrecking company that was doing the demolition and they're like, yeah, we got some of the timber here, oh, that's fine. Bit weird, like why do you want some timber? It's just old rotten timber. And they're like, we've also got some carpet from the members dining room. Now it's going to sound really, really weird but the, the members area of the um, MCG is really quite famous. It's like a 30-year wait list to become a member. Um, once you become a member, you can go to any event in the ground. It's, it's quite prestigious and, and famous. And the carpet that was in the members dining room in the members area at the time was really really famous as well dog ugly but really famous it had the crest and the logo of the MCG there 
uh, and the MCC, and they're like, oh, I've got some of the carpet as well if you want that. And you know, knowing the importance and the, the history of that, I'm like done over the phone, bought the whole thing, had to borrow a friend's credit card to be able to pay for it because I had no credit limit left, <laughs> done, and yeah. then um, made a series of memorabilia pieces up. So history of the MCG on a plaque, a photo of the MCG, a piece of this carpet, some of the frames are made out of the actual authentic timber. And then I wrote a press release because, again, couldn't pay for advertising. So I'm like, how do I get the word out without spending any money? Had to sort of, you know, be resourceful because I didn't have many resources. You know, it's what's, I think it might even be a Mark Victor Hansen saying, actually. It's like Could've you been. can either have resources to use or you have to be resourceful. And it forced me to be resourceful. So press release, 21-year-old um, sells the MCG for under 500 bucks. And it just went bananas here in the Australian media, you know, in all the newspapers, TV, radio. And um, that was a massive little project for me. It was kind of my first serious business project that was a, a massive success and learned a lot from it. Um, learned a lot in hindsight, purely by luck. I think you can kind of talk about, oh, you know, I was really wise in doing certain things. But I think most of it was just sheer dumb luck having to be resourceful that actually played out really well and I was mm -hmm. able to take some of those lessons into other companies we've started since then. So how many plaques did you sell? So we bought enough carpet that was about the size of a basketball court and then each square was roughly the size of a, a, a piece of paper. So there was a good you know, couple of thousand pieces of carpet we were able to actually use and, and turn into frames. Still selling some today, still got a few left over. Uh, made a series of um, handcrafted executive pens made out of the timber as well. Uh, did literally copied Paul's project and actually made some of those certificates up as well and did that. So over the years did uh, a number of different kind of things cool. with the, the leftover piece of, uh, of history. Well, and you know, being there, those are people that uh, have not been to Australia, you guys are uh, sports fanatics and especially, you know, Australian rules football, it's crazy. Yeah. And so hey, I just love it. I just love it. Yeah, well, absolutely. In Melbourne, as far as a sports a town, everybody talks about Chicago and being a sports town. But uh, my colleague and my friend was there. He says, that if there is a sports event that we can pinch, says, then we try to get it. You guys stole the F1 race from Adelaide. Yep. And uh, anyways, on it goes. My wife's into tennis. So where is the Australian Open? in Melbourne, yep, right? So, and we walked the grounds uh, as part of our trip there just a couple of months ago. So, yeah. I well, get to give it. you an idea. This is this is the thing that continues to blow my mind. Like I've lived here all my life, but we so Australian rules football. It's a national sport. There's teams, you know, in every state, in every city around the country. But Melbourne, um, a city of, you know, I don't know, was it five million people? Probably less, two and a half. I don't know. We've got twenty million in Australia, so whatever the population of of Melbourne is, it's not massive, but right. There's, it, it, it can support seven different teams in the one league. Like so in the Australian Football League, there's like Melbourne support seven national teams. Like imagine like, you know, LA, they've got the Clippers and the Lakers. Imagine having five other basketball teams in the league coming out of, out of LA. It's just, you couldn't comprehend that. But in Melbourne, that's how nuts we are about sport that... In the National League, the city can still support five teams. And, you know, you go to a game, you're getting 50,000 plus people at every game. You know, 100,000 people at the, at, the, at the finals and stuff. It's, it's insane how um, just religious sport is here. It's, just, it's, a, it's a strange, strange thing. Oh, it is, and it's interesting. How do you choose which team you're going to be loyal to when you have so many within your own area? Oh, look, back in the day, like I think, you know, in history it was about where you grew up. That if you grew up in, in, in Collingwood, in the suburb of Collingwood, you barracked for Collingwood, Essendon, Richmond, you know, Footscray, you barracked and you supported the team that where you lived. That obviously has changed as time has gone on and now it's pretty much, generally speaking, it's who did, you, who did your dad barrack for? So, you know, when you get born, your dad buys you the footy <laughs> jumper and the footy jersey that um, that he is supports and that's how it gets handed down, generation oh, man, to generation. Propaganda, propaganda. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's marketing. Well, that's great, Pete. So, man, that was that's an amazing story of you um, taking that idea from uh, the Brooklyn Bridge and then transforming it for your space there. And sorry, for some reason, I just didn't connect to that. Even it's even listed here in your bio. So yeah, then, well, I'm just amazed. That, I'm more amazed that you were in the book. That's blowing my mind more than than anything well, else. There you go. Okay, it's just it's <laughs> just a very small mention because there's a group of us. So the, um, with that is 
what did you do next? So you got this success, you got this media. Where did you go after that? Yeah, good question. Uh, so I, you know, I started doing some speaking, the usual sort of stuff. People want to tell me to tell the story at various events because it was such a unique kind of fun story. I got approached by a publisher to do a book, so I wrote a, wrote a book about it, which has the worst title, the most late-night infomercial title you'll ever imagine. It's called How to Turn Your Million Dollar Idea Into a Reality from the man who sold the MCG. I hate that title, always have, but you know, I was you know, 23, 24 at the time, and you know, the publishers came to me and gave me a book deal with an advance, and I was just like, yes, sir, no, sir, okay, sir. Didn't really realize mm. I could push back and say some stuff and didn't love that title, but you know, whatever it is, it is what it is. So that, that book, um, and then from there, kind of started doing a few other bits and pieces, but uh, ended up in the telecommunication space, and I'm still there, you know, 12, 13, whatever it is, 14 years later now. Um, that's sort of where I spend a lot of my time is in the telecommunication space. We don't, like, I'm not a telco guy. My business partners in this group are not telco people necessarily. We just are sales and marketing guys that happen to be in the telco space. It's sort of the way we look at it. We're a sales and marketing company, um, just in a particular niche. So are you dealing with the sell side or are you dealing with the hardwire side for business? What's, what is it that's in your business there? Yeah, well, it's grown over the years. So how that started was, so my business partners were in the telco space a little bit um, doing kind of, We'll call it cheap phone calls, like rebilling, offering people cheap phone calls for their businesses. It's probably the easiest way to explain it. Mm. And I kind of came along and, and started consulting with them and working with them on some stuff. And we realized at the time that this is, yeah, you know, early 2000s that, you know, the yellow pages were dying and Google was absolutely becoming the trusted authority for um, references and recommendations. That if someone, you know, if, if an office manager was given the task to go and get a quote for a new phone system, they weren't going and opening up the yellow pages anymore. They were going to the internet, they're going to Google and Yahoo and, uh, and searching. And we realized that obviously they were in a very, very niche pocket of the telco space and we're kind of looking around at, you know, how can we expand, what can we do differently and went, there's a massive gap here because in Australia at the time, no one was sort of uh, in the telco space aware of this shift that was happening in, the, in, in just the, the global way people were searching. So we pivoted that business, I became a partner and we started the, the hardware business um, which is you know, a big part of what we still do today where you know, we sell and install physical office phone systems all around Australia and that business pretty much grew off the back of Google SEO and Google AdWords in that we you know, built the website and we were all about just generating the leads. And, and this is some of the stuff that actually kind of came out of the MCG venture in that the thing with the MCG venture, which you know, was not wisdom. You know, a lot of people, I think, when they kind of look back over their journey and they, they see successes they had, they kind of justify it to intelligence or wisdom, whereas it was just sheer dumb luck in that the way we were selling the actual frames, the MCG frames at the time, like I was still working athlete's foot. So I had to just, based on resourcefulness that I kind of mentioned earlier, the frames, I, I literally was cutting the carpet up and having a boxes of the carpet cut, sitting at a framer's um, you know, warehouse or facility. I would then get an order either by fax or by phone call for a frame. I'd call Dave and go, Dave, we've got another order. Can you please make up frame number 134? He would then literally get the carpet, frame it up with a photo and basically make the piece of memorabilia to, to match the order. Uh, I would then call a courier who would go to Dave's um, factory, pick up the frames, deliver them to the customers. So that whole business model was just massively leveraged. It was leveraged from, the, from day one because I just didn't have the time or ability or the skill set. You know, I cannot do manual labor at all. So I'm trying to make frames. I could not have done that. Um, was just leveraged really, really well. And it was also cash flow positive in that I didn't have a lot of cash that to, to fund this, it was like literally we were making the sale and telling people it was a three-week delivery time due to demand and then literally as the sale came out, I'd say, Dave, can you make up the next frame in the series? Um, so we took that business model, which was sheer dumb luck, but we sort of, I learned from that and went, oh, that, that kind of was really smart. How can we apply this as uh, myself and the new business partner started the telco business in that we were generating our leads, we were you know, getting in front of people when they were you know, looking for the the problem they were trying to solve or the solution for the problem they had, you know, going to Google, going phone system quote, whatever it might be. And we would, you know, clients would call in, we'd take the order for the, you know, we'd help them out, we'd do a really good job of, you know, customer support and, and, and selling them on the solution. And then we, you know, 
invoice them, get their 50% deposit, and then we would literally call a competitor to do the installation for us. We were literally, you know, we weren't technicians. You know, we didn't have that. We were a sales and marketing company. So we had to literally go to subcontractors who, you know, really at the end of the day are competitors to actually do the installations for us. And that was really good to start with to prove the business model. It worked really, really well. We were able to cash flow the business positively from day one. Uh, we didn't have to worry about all the technical stuff. And that was really, really good at the time. Yet, we realized pretty quickly there were some major flaws, medium to long term in that. A couple of things, you know, for example, you know, look, Ken, if you bought a phone system from a company and then you needed to buy more handsets or, or get some more work done on that system and expand it as your business grew, who are you going to call? Are you going to call the company who effectively just took your order or the person who actually turned up, trained your team on it, installed it, programmed it and actually did the support element? You know, of, of, of course, course you're going to probably call. Yeah. Of course. And you know, in our naivety at the time, we kind of didn't realize that. So we had very, very little repeat business because of that reason. You know, our competitors, whether they were doing it deliberately or not, some did, some didn't, they were effectively stealing our clients. Um, or you could argue we were giving them to them on a silver platter, one or the other. <laughs> yeah, fair so enough. That was a massive problem for us. Uh, so then we kind of realized, okay, cool, how do we, we pivot away from this and, and grow the business? And that's when we kind of started thinking about other stuff and other ways to, to run the business and some of the frameworks that we, we, we utilize now. Uh, and then over that journey, it's sort of, I guess, answer your original question a bit more is, yeah, so that's the core businesses, the hardware business. We have the la a couple of e-commerce businesses, the largest headset uh, reseller in Australia is one of our e-commerce businesses in the group. We've got a phone carrier, so think you know AT&T or someone like that, but smaller uh, here in Australia. Right. We've got a phone carrier as well, so we've got a number of businesses in that telco group as we've expanded over the last sort of decade or so. Wow, wow, exciting, exciting. Now with that, Pete, all of a sudden you start shifting, and you had a podcast of your own for years, mm. and you went into consulting for entrepreneurs and started the preneurgroup.com. Yeah. So uh, where did the gestation happen for that? Well, that's kind of always been there, I think, in that you know the that company was started pretty much around the same sort of time off the back of the MCG project. You know, when I was doing some consulting and speaking and stuff like that, and effectively this telco group kind of came out of that in a, in a way and that I was doing some, some work with the with Adam and, and Troy who are my partners in the telco business now and I was consulting there and then obviously that whole story, we, we pivoted the business, I became involved but again, have never worked more than four days a week in the telco. It's always fluctuated between three or four from day one because I had the other stuff going on, the consulting, the book, the speaking, that sort of stuff. So, you know, the way I, I guess I try and treat it is that Preneur Group is my business and my my group and then within that we've invested in various businesses, um, some more than others, uh, in some invested time, some invested money, some just invested you know, consulting and so the, the infinity is sort of uh, an offshoot of Preneur if, if that's sort of a way to look at it. Um, so yeah, so you know, a couple of days a week doing that consulting work, you know, the new book, the writing. Uh, I really enjoy that balance. Maybe it is that mum's teaching um, sort of stuff coming through with the entrepreneurship, skip the generation that we spoke about before, but maybe the the teaching thing and that the the stuff is very much first generation from mum. Mm. Well, it's you're doing both. I mean, entrepreneurship. You're educating, right? You're you're mm. helping the space that you enjoy uh, get better. So yeah, you know, I've really enjoyed reading and really enjoyed learning and stuff. And it's just like, well, you know, we've had some wins and we've had a shit ton of losses over the years. That um, it's not. Well, nobody ever talks those. about those, right? Yeah, um, that's the thing. Sorry, I cut you off. Then go ahead. No, no, go ahead. So when you think about some of those uh, learning experiences, what would you say to others out there where you said, well, I, you know, I failed in a business so I can't do business? Well, I think, yeah, you know, it's very cliche that, you know, failure is just whenever you decide to quit. You know, there's like, for, for years, and I know I'll be very transparent, for years I didn't even articulate, whether it was internally or definitely not publicly, the the scrubs we had around that the original business model is that you know it was all about yeah we were great we were in sales and marketing business and all yeah blah blah and we we did really good and we or I particularly focused on like all the wins we were having and that we were amazing at lead gen and 
you know, we had this problem in the business, another problem that we had, and you could argue it's a problem, but it, it did cause a massive issue is that because we were so focused on sales and marketing, that we were very, very fortunate, skilled, mixture of both, that we had a constant stream of new leads coming to the business because for a gr grand period of time, and even still to this day, you know, our lead generation is very proactive. We don't do any cold calling. It's all warm leads that we can generate from our marketing. Mm -hmm. So what that meant is that we had this continual stream of new business coming in the door, which resulted in us never, not only did we sort of handball some of our clients off to the competitors for the first few years until we realized there was a problem there, and then we started to hire our own technicians and all that sort of stuff. Even at that point, we made that first shift, we still didn't focus on customer experience enough. Because you know we had this luxury of getting all these new leads in, mm. it's like, well, we very naively, very poorly, didn't care enough about the customers that we sold to make sure they, they were getting an amazing experience because, well, we had a new person knocking on the door to buy from us again, and well, let's just go back there, you know? You know? Mm. And it wasn't something that I'm overly proud of now, looking back in hindsight. You know, we thought we were great because we were getting all these new leads, but that's only sort of, you know, effectively, you know, three-sevenths of a business. You know, new lead generation is really only three sevenths that you have to worry about and now we've made a massive shift in that you know we've won awards now for our customer experience and the stuff we're doing is is a massive shift over the last three or four years than it used to be um, but there's yeah the major issue and that costs us a lot of money um, a, a lot of up to, you know revenue that we we, we lost it's not only actually physically lost money but actually lost upside and that you know not only did we not get a lot of repeat business from the customers we gave to our competitors obviously we also didn't get a lot of uh, repeat business from our own customers once we started servicing them ourselves. So they weren't getting a great experience. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of when we started over that sort of period of time, we started realizing, we started sitting down going, okay, what is it that's driving profit in our business? What is it that drives profit in every business? And we stopped focusing on the front only and that sales and marketing, you know, we only, at that time, we're caring about new leads, new leads. Give me the new leads, you know, the Glengarry Gen Ross mm -hmm. kind of, you know, stuff. And then we kind of went, okay, hang on, let's, let's, let's slow down. Let's look at the holistic picture. What, is, what are the other things we're missing in our business? And that's kind of where a lot of the frameworks we run our company on now kind of came from. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And uh, Pete, I can tell you've hosted a podcast. You've got the right energy always. Doesn't he guess? So you're listening. You've got all the <laughs> So I appreciate, appreciate that. that. You know, when we think about business, all the different moving parts and the systems that are required, so let's transition with that where you brought your wisdom into your latest book, Cadence. Now, mm. if people want to get a hold of Cadence, how can they get a hold of it? Oh, look, you know, the usual cliche, where all good books are sold. Um, you know, Amazon, your local bookstore, it's available everywhere. Or simply cadencebook.com. If you just head www.cadencebook.com, uh, that will kind of give you the links and some, a whole bunch more information about it there. Okay. So thank you for that. So when you, you had your podcast show and then you actually uh, stopped and I'd asked you in an email, why did you stop? And you said, well, I, I'd talked about everything. Explain <laughs> that yep. I had to share. Explain that a little further. Yeah, well, look, we, that podcast was about five or six years, um, had a lifespan about five years and that we, we stopped it probably about I'm going to say about five years ago. So we kind of stopped it right before podcasting got big, which was ironic and annoying. And we were one of the biggest shows at the time. We had some amazing guests on and our regular stuff we did ourselves. And I loved it. Like, it was fantastic. We made some great friends out of it with guests that are now friends, Tim Ferriss, Robert Green, Ryan Holiday, a whole bunch of amazing people. And we were. We were sharing what we were doing in our companies. Uh, you know, every, we were doing like a, a, a bi-weekly show that one week it was myself and my co-host talking about what we were learning what we were doing, what we were finding in our own companies, and the, off, and the other week was, was a guest. It was a nice little balance, but I literally just ran out of stuff to say. I think I kind of said everything, and I wasn't going to just keep doing a show and repeating the same stuff. Um, people still listen to it. They still download it. We still get emails almost every day of people asking to be guests on the show. It's like, have you done any research? It's been five years since we published a show. Do some research before you do a pitch. Um, so people are still listening. Well, I'll, and, you know, sure I'll, e I'll, I'll email you right after this. <laughs> and literally just ran out of stuff to say and I, I think you know we, we are talking about doing the show again pretty soon purely because a whole bunch has happened in the last five years that I think has some substance to share again I don't want to waste people time with just you know 
um, another show. There's great ones like yours that people can listen to. They don't need another show. Um, yet I think there could be some good content we can share and some frameworks and models that we're, we've developed and we're using and we've learned over the last few years and we'll, we, we might look at bringing it back. Well, there you go. And of course, now podcasting is just the rave. So uh, it might be perfect timing as part of it. So part of, thanks, Peter. As part of your book, you talk about, and this is actually something, uh, you know, prior to writing the book and was the core of it, around your seven levers. Mm. And, you know, we have a mixed audience, some people in leadership, some people that don't own businesses. But I think, you know, the, the principles apply to everybody. So just take us through, we have about 15 minutes left in the show, but take us through uh, what are some of these seven levers or wh- why don't we go through all of them and sure. you know, how does it apply to myself, my business and my life? Yeah, well, I think the the framework came out of, you know, it wasn't one day, like it wasn't just like, you know, one afternoon at two o'clock we sat down and got a whiteboard out and, you know, solved the the fundamental problem of gravity, you know, we, it was a bit of a, a gestation period, but effectively what we did is when we sort of had, and we started identifying the problems we were having in our own companies, um, that we were a successful business, but, you know, problems in terms of, you know, growth problems and our goals, we sort of went, okay, what is it that really drives profit in the business? Not just our business, but any business. We started to try and figure that out. What are the, the drivers of profit? Not necessarily drivers of growth or traction or, any of those sort of buzzwords now. It's like, what does it really drives profit? And we, we, we identified seven things. And I actually think it sucks at seven because, you know, seven dwarfs, seven sins, seven habits, like the seven everything. It's just so annoying, mm. but it's just the way the math works. So well, we kind of realized... Well, a lucky number in many cultures, so not, it's true. not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. It's just a bit cliche. But anyway, so the, the seven things that drive profit, and we kind of identified, okay, what are they? And then what we found off the back of that it's something pretty powerful that we've termed 10% win. So we'll definitely cover that too because I think that's the most important or the most surprising thing out of, out of this whole whole framework. So effectively, there's seven things that drive profit. Whether you're a retail store, you know, the book Cadence, it's it's actually based on a true story. So it's a, it's a, a parable. It's not a traditional non-fiction business book. So it's a really enjoyable read and it's about a retail bike store that was struggling and the, the bike shop owner starts coaching an athlete to his first Ironman triathlon and during the 20 weeks of his training, um, the Ironman athlete actually helps the, the bike store owner change the trajectory of his business by applying the seven levers framework as well. So it's based on a true story, literally about a bike store across the road from my office here in Melbourne that when I did my first Ironman. So the framework works whether you're a telco business like us, a retail business, a hairdresser, a landscape gardener, whatever it is, the, the framework applies. So you've got suspects. You know, if we took a shoe store, it's a really nice analogy. I like the shoe store analogy. It goes back to my roots and I think it's really easy to apply the levers and, and get understanding. So suspects, these are the people who first hear about your business. They might walk into your retail store. They, they visit your website, um, whatever it might be. These are the suspects. You've then got prospects. What percentage of those suspects actually put up their hand and say, look, I actually want to be sold to. I'm, I'm a qualified prospect. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm seriously a, a possible fit for your products and services. You know, in a footwear store, it's they sit down and try on a pair of shoes. You know, in a online sort of information marketing business, maybe they take up your free trial or download your free report. Uh, maybe they come and get a, they request a free quote for your phone systems that you sell or for your landscape gardening services. What is it that actually, what's that micro commitment? that someone takes that identifies them from just being a, a looky lure or a tire kicker to being a qualified prospect. So that's sort of the, the, the first two levers. Then you've got your conversions. What percentage of those prospects actually end up opening up their wallet, writing you a check, giving you their credit card details and becoming a customer? Mm. The next element is your average item price. What is it? What are the average prices of the items you sell across your store? Maybe you sell shoes, socks, um, foot cleaner or shoe cleaner, you know, what is the average item price that you're, you're, you're selling to your customers and how are you trying to increase that on, a, on, on an everyday basis? Uh, items per sale, what's the average items per sale? You know, are you asking, would you like fries with that? Are you selling the pair of shoes and the pair of socks? Are you selling the phone system with the headset? Are you doing the landscape gardening but also cleaning the gutters at the same time? Are you doing the haircut but also selling some special shampoo to help keep the colour in? whatever it might be. What are you doing in your business to ensure you are increasing your average items per transaction? Then you've got your actual transactions per customer. How often are these people coming back? 
what are you doing to get these people to come back to you? And for us in the telco, we weren't doing anything. We were literally giving our customers away to our competitors. Like not only were we not doing any sort of marketing to these people, we didn't have any sort of sequences in place or customer experience or onboarding sequences to get people to come back. We were actually literally giving the customers away. Like we were violating that rule well, if, massively. Well, if you want to do that with your consulting clients to me, then that's fine. You know, if you're still in that business, I'm, I'm just sorry, I'm sorry, Pete, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got your margins. The last lever is your margins. What are you actually keeping in the bottom line of your business? And I think that there's a couple of things. Those seven things, you know, suspects, prospects, conversions, average item price, average items per sale, transactions, and margins. They're not that revolutionary. Yet, I would argue that I think a lot of people who are listening to this wouldn't be able to easily articulate what A, each of those levers are in their business, what actually defines that in your business, and also what are your numbers? Because if, you, you know, if you're not tracking these numbers, everything else is vanity metrics. These are the things that drive profit. And if you're in business to, to, to generate a profit, these are the seven numbers you need to know because they're the numbers that drive the profit. Everything else is just distraction and vanity. So that's kind of the first things is that I think a lot of businesses, when they start identifying that, they realize, oh, hang on, I forgot that our autoresponders credit card expired and that email sequence that we had to get people to back to our store uh, is not actually working at the moment um, or variations of that. But the real kicker is this thing that we, we, we sort of stumbled across and discovered that we, we term 10% wins. And what it is, is if you increase each of those seven areas by just 10%, your current conversion rate might be 20%, boost it to 22%. You might get 1,000 people coming to your website a week at the moment. Just boost it to 1,100. Don't double it. Don't try and kind of get 10,000 new email subscribers today like the crappy online marketing website sales letters say. Just a 10% mm -hmm. boost. You know, going from an average transaction per customer of 1.2 to 1.31, just, you know, 10% wins. Very, very easy to do. takes a lot of pressure off. The actual compound result is a 2x, a doubling of your bottom line profit. And I think mm. for so many business owners, the freedom that gives them in the, you know, oh, I've been trying to grow my business and all I ever try and do is double my leads. I'm trying to get more leads into my business. And that is damn hard work to double anything. But if I said, all you need to do is get a 10% boost in each of these areas, and a lot of these things you can do very, very easily. You know, For example, um, a, a newspaper in the UK, uh, a ma major newspaper in the UK, they got a 10% win in their online conversions for their, their subscriptions by simply spending an afternoon putting trust logos and some social proof on the checkout pages. You know, a, a, local, wow. a, a local mechanic was able to get a 10% boost in the amount of people who came in getting quotes to fix their car by putting an A-frame outside their business. Uh, you know, another business got a, a boost by running a very small local AdWords campaign around their business. You know, a, a, a boutique motion picture investment broker in the UK uh, got a 10% boost by just running an AdWords campaign. They get like three clicks a day. Like it's not much traffic at all. But when you're sort of selling high-end investments into motion pictures and films, mm. they didn't need a whole bunch more traffic to get a 10%. We only needed sort of one or two more calls a week, and that gave them that boost. So it gives you that freedom to go, look, I don't have to be Babe Ruth and hit it out of the park every time. I just need to focus on these seven areas, and maybe it's one area a week for the next seven weeks, and just look at what are you currently doing and how can you get a 10% win in those areas. The cumulative effect is a massive change to your bottom line profits. And that's the framework that we use to run our businesses now. We keep cycling through that framework over and over again, trying to get those 10% wins. It's worked remarkably for so many businesses. And that's kind of the framework that the, the book talks about. Wow. You know, when you think about it, it's simple yet powerful. And, I, and you know, everybody talks about compound interest, but if you talk mm. about the, the cumulative effect of each one of these, I'll call it interaction points with your business, then two yep. times two times profit just about and there's nobody listening to the show that says well listen i wouldn't want to double my results <laughs> is there anybody exactly. listening here that doesn't want to double their results yes i hear nobody i get it thank you <laughs> so um from that what else can you kind of glean that's in the story that's that are wisdom for us around these seven we only have four or five minutes left in the show pete boy the time just goes when we have a great guest but uh, what can you leave for us that are really, you know, behaviors, traits, or other things that you've discovered, you know, doing all the shows that you did with all those individuals, plus this book that you can leave with the audience today? 
Yeah, look, for, for me, it's models and frameworks. You know, having that structure um, to actually follow. Otherwise, you are kind of running around from, you know, tactic to tactic. And, um, you know, tactics are normally below the belt. Strategy is above the shoulders. Um, and I find that a, a funny little quirky way of looking at it in that, you know, you really want to be, you want to have a framework that kind of drives your focus and your direction in your business. And you can, you know, go, okay, cool. You know, I see a product about webinars. I, I want to look at social media, whatever it might be. If you can't figure out how a webinar can actually give you a boost in one of those seven areas, using a webinar in your business is not for you. And I find that framework gives you focus, but also creates a filter too. And we talk about that quite a bit in the book and probably don't have time to go through it today, but talking about using the seven levers framework as a filter and a focus point in that you know, every Monday afternoon, you know, this, this is the problem that, that I have with Michael Gerber and the E-Myth. I'll, I'll try not rant too much, but Michael Gerber did a great job telling people the difference between working in your business and working on your business. You know, right. Being a mechanic and working on the tools versus working on the business to actually grow the business. And did a massive job of helping a generation understand that definition. The problem was though, he didn't tell anybody where to focus their attention when they're working on their business. And so what a lot of people they do is they go, yeah, cool, okay, on Monday afternoon, I'm gonna sit down and work on my business. Great, okay, here we go, I've sharpened my pencil, I've got a nice new yellow pad next to me. I'm going to sit down for the next two hours and work on my business. And then just silence. Like, what am I working on? What do I actually work on? Where do I, what should I do? And I think the seven levers framework gives that focus of, okay, this week, when I'm working on my business, I'm going to figure out what we're doing right now to drive suspects. I'm going to try and figure out how I can get a 10% boost. Next week, I'm going to work on our transactions per customer. I'm going to look at what we're currently doing in our business right now to, to get customers to come back and transact from us again. And I'm going to work out how can I improve that by 10%. And it gives you that focus and that, and that framework to follow, that, that blueprint almost, when you are working on your business to know where to focus. And I think that's been a, a massive help for a range of business owners and, and leaders and managers uh, right across, across the globe, which has been really exciting to see. Well, I love that uh, fact, Peter, where your reverse engineering says, okay, is this, that, is this activity contributing to one of these seven areas? Is it really helping in the margins? Is it helping on the transactions per customers? That might be where I'm adding a new product and now all of a sudden there's something else for them to come back to, uh, which they didn't have before because I sell one item. And by the way, I met Michael Gerber in person when he came out with the book 25 mm -hmm. years ago. So, uh, but I agree with you is it can be overwhelming when you're trying to systemize the whole business. Yeah. And I like your idea where you're talking about, you know, let's just take this, you know, one step at a time. Everybody talks about 10x your business, all that kind of thing. <laughs> but what can I do this moment? I mean, that's the American thing. I'm Canadian. I, no offense to the Americans, but it's this way out there, right? Is mm -hmm. uh, what can I do today? I mean, you're an Ironman person. If I was not to be running and I decide I'm doing a marathon tomorrow, I'd probably be dead. So <laughs> I, I'm just going to have to work my way up to it. What else can you uh, wrap up the show with uh, as a, first of all, let's make sure that everybody learns how they can get a hold of you. So give us the book URL again and also your personal uh, website. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So cadencebook.com, it's available where all good books are sold. Um, that's probably a great place to start. Preneur Group, P-R-E-N-E-U-R, so Preneur is in like entrepreneur, group.com um, is sort of where you can find stuff on me. I'm at Preneur in a whole bunch of places, um, you know, Instagram and stuff like that, kind of, you know, see some of the crazy stuff I do there. Um, yeah, so come and say g'day. Let me know that, you know, you've heard Ken and myself chat. Love to connect with you and, and see where, where the, we can help you. Well, thank you, Pete. Now, so Pete, what do you want to leave for your takeaway, your final word of wisdom or thought processes to individuals out there as far as success in life, a, a takeaway for us? Oh, ah, good question. Uh, look, beware of the dream takers. I think you know, it's, sort of a, a, it's sort of been my little personal motto for, for a few years is beware of the dream takers. Uh, but I think it's really important. I, I really do think that so many business owners don't have strategies and frameworks. And I don't really care if it's a seven levels or other ones. There's plenty of other business models and frameworks out there, but... I see too many people just running from tactic to tactic with no foundation to pin mm. that to. Mm. And that, you know, I was talking to someone the other day who runs a, um, how do I describe it? They're 
a body corporate manager for golf resorts. So a golf club that has like a residential um, element to it. So your people who live actually on the golf course or in the residential right. community on the golf course, and he manages that. And he was one of, he, and he you know got on someone's email list and saw a pitch for a webinar product. And he was telling me he's like he's bought this webinar course. It's two grand. He's going to start running webinars. And I'm like, how the heck is that going to help you get more? Um, body corporate owner corporations or you know groups to then actually you know enlist your services to manage and actually run their golf community like how does that bridge even make sense and he was just got so caught up in the sales funnel and the sales pipe and the marketing that was really really good for this webinar product mm. and just went oh it's going to work for my business because he had no filter or framework or model right. to put it through and I see that so often that he would have gone and spent hours trying to figure out how to create this beautiful webinar that probably would be a very, very nice webinar and very, very educational, but his target audience are not going to sit through a webinar. How you, they're not going to be able to get to that webinar. He's not going to be able to market the webinar too. Like, webinar is not the right fit for his business. Mm. You know, maybe it could fit as a way to sort of deliver value to the actual people who live in the communities that he manages and run these webinars to sort of teach people how to look after their community and you know, the different things they're running in the community like an events and stuff, but from a sales perspective, it just wasn't going to fit. But he went and spent two grand on this course because he didn't have a framework or a filter to keep him accountable. And I see that too often in businesses. Yeah. And there's so much, thank you, Pete, for that. There's so many opportunities. I mean, your head could absolutely, you could blow, you blow your head off, right? Pardon the pun. Yeah. You could explode it with just all the possibilities and just trying to contain yourself uh, with all the noise, all the directions, all the options is significant. So, yep. Pete, Mr. Williams, thank you very much for spending time with us. Ken, thank you so much for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Well, I loved your energy. SOS list listeners, that is Mr. Pete Williams. Go online, get his book, find out more about him. And, hey, go to his country. Go to Melbourne. I loved it. It was great. <laughs> Enjoy your time there. And as always, we thank you for taking your most valuable commodity and sharing it with us, and that's your time. If you like what we're doing, share it, pass it on, leave a positive response in whatever platform that you're listening on. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.